Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Proximo podcast for 2021. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Anne Lapierre, Global Head of Energy at Norton Rose Fulbright, who is going to help me unpack the recent COP26 climate conference and its implications for the global infrastructure and project finance markets. Anne is a project banking lawyer based in Paris. She heads Norton Rose Fulbright's global energy practice and is the co-manager of the firm's Casablanca office. She focuses on project development, construction, financing, acquisition, and the transfer of projects related to both renewables and conventional oil and gas production. Anne has advised on numerous energy and infrastructure related projects in France, Europe, and French-speaking Africa. Over her career, Anne has worked on first of their kind, innovative and significant energy projects. She is also involved with many organizations that aim to break new ground in the energy market. Anne sits on the board of French Wind Association, FEE, and is a sustainable development expert on Bertrand Picard's Solar Impulse Foundation Strategic Committee. Anne is recognized by all French and foreign market players and advises developers and industrial clients, as well as investment funds and banks. Anne, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Thomas, for having me. It's a pleasure. Because it's a delight to have you on, and it's a very interesting topic, I think, at an interesting time as well. I mean, if I just kick off our discussion with a question about the conference as a whole, I mean, to what extent do you think COP26 and the launch of the Net Zero Banking Alliance might shift the outlook of lenders in relation to investing in different asset classes? Well, I think that was a major move. And uh, I know some some were thinking the, the glass was half empty. Others were thinking that the glass was half full after the negotiation at COP26 this year. Personally, I just I just feel that definitely uh, the, the glass is half full. Uh, the economy and the transition is going to happen where the money is going. So it's a crucial uh, uh, decision to have all of the lenders and the banking worlds actually making the decision to allocate and to invest in um, uh, what is going to be uh, the key uh, shift in, in the century uh, and to, to get away from financing what the you know gray or, or black assets and just just go to finance to transition so it's a major major move uh, it will need to take time to be implemented because obviously as we all know uh, all the lenders which are uh, applying as members uh, have um, sometimes 18 months to define what is the plan uh, and they need to go to towards a a, a net zero objectives uh, with intermediary objectives set up by 2030 so it's not going to happen today, but the fact that there is this movement is really, in my view, uh, an evidence of the fact that uh, we have reached a tipping point in uh, the financing of uh, the climate transition uh, with this with this agreement. And it's a key element. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about other. I think globally, uh, in that regard, COP26 was was very very uh, positive. I guess we're going to talk about labels about you know, maybe about the methods, up, 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 up to you. But I think there was a large number of very key commitments which have been taken, which are not uh, yet developed, but will really, it's going to be um, a game changer uh, compared to um, the commitment, but the slow movement, uh, which we've been with witnesses for the previous year. Yes, I mean, I suppose something like Mark Carney's GFANS, you know, $130 trillion of 
assets theoretically committed from the private sector is probably, I, I think you might agree, that, that the most significant attempt we've seen yet to attempt to finance the energy transition. For sure, because there have been a lot of commitments in terms of, of, of financing, uh, but so far uh, with a little um, a conversion into uh, actual financing of projects, we all know that uh, the money of the public sector it's going to be a must-have to de-risk the project, but uh, this 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 type of fund is obviously a key one to uh, accelerate uh, the transition. So I think what is really the key element in all of that is that for 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 the past years uh, we were discussing on how we should transition, how we could finance this transition. And because that's going to be so expensive, there were really uh, very, uh, ac you know, uh, accurate questions uh, on the financing. I think what we can say about the commitment which uh, happened in COP26 is that it actually uh, provide uh, the adequate agreement and alignment from a financing standpoint to finance the transition. Um, I think it would be uh, over optimistic to say that those commitments are sufficient to finance the whole journey. But I think it's it's reasonable, true, uh, and adequate to understand that today we've got the financing available to finance the transition for the coming years. And that's really uh, the first time that we're in that situation. So the financing is there. Uh, there is much more coordination between the public and the private sector. And there is much more uh, coordination between players uh, globally um, on top of uh, regionally, because obviously the, the climate is a, is, is a, is a global issue. So the, the difficulty is really to align the domestic, the regional and the global positions in that regard. So, so I think um, we can really uh, say that today the money is there. So the question is now, are the projects there? So um, there is this huge amount of financing which is going to be available. Uh, in terms of inventment to the transition. The question is, do we really have, as of today, uh, in the global world, uh, existing sufficient projects to actually allow the transition and allow this money to be poured into the system now? And I'm afraid that at the time being, as we speak, the answer is no. That's why we probably will need to go down the route of thinking about mechanisms to support supply and demand and probably more demand and supply and probably as well to use some uh, public money or mechanism to de-risk uh, the investment because transition means to switch from uh, existing technologies uh, to new less polluting technologies. For example, there is a factor of risks, there is a factor of cost because obviously if we take, for example, uh, green hydrogen, uh, it's not yet economic. So we need to do pilot uh, projects, we need to do some testing, we need to do some um, some innovation altogether, uh, and we need to have some money to support the first hit if something goes wrong, or actually to balance if everything goes right, to balance the economic, because uh, as we know, for example, for, for, for hydrogen, uh, the cost of, 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 green, of gray hydrogen is around $2 per, per kilo. Um, and in Europe, we, we've seen projects around between 10 and 14 dollars uh, per kilo. So, so the gap is, is huge. It doesn't mean that uh, it's not sustainable. It only means that uh, those projects need to be scaled up enough to have uh, the capex going down, as we've seen in renewable energy, for example, where 
for solar, uh, and, and, and we, we, we've witnessed in the past 10 years, you know, a reduction of capex of close to 90%, and probably 80% uh, for, for wind. So, so it's the same process. When you're doing small projects, it's very expensive. When you do mass project, uh, capex are, 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 are reducing. So it's, there, is, there is two things here. Do we have enough project? I don't think so. So we need to, to have help uh, to, to, to develop more quickly project and to de-risk project to ensure that all of this huge money, which have been promised at COP26, is actually um, in capacity to be used to finance the transition. Otherwise, um, it's going to be difficult because we're going to see a very, very massive competition from the financing lenders and banks and funds uh, really um, competing to finance the few projects which are qualifying for them in terms of size or in terms of risk. And all the rest of the money is going to sit with them, which would be a pity. So we need to work together to ensure that there is a global framework which is put in place for uh, these huge money commitment uh, to be uh, injected into the economy. Yes, because I, I suppose you could say that, you know, if you've got $130 trillion of assets committed, they're only theoretically committed unless you actually have a tangible pipeline of bankable projects in which this, you know, to which this capital can be deployed. That's the, that's exactly that. And so that that's the problem. Uh, obviously, um, the question is, uh, do we have this size of pipelines? That's probably may not be the case. And if we going and looking in detail at those very large pipelines, they include a large number of projects which will not be bankable uh, from a non-recourse project finance standpoint, uh, you know, uh, standard markets. So, so that means help either because there is a geopolitical issue or risk, uh, because there is a transport risk, because there is a, a, a cost disconnection, because there is an off-tech risk. So, so the commitment is great, but now that we know we've got that secured, I think the work uh, really starting, uh, and we all need to 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 row. I think that's the word together to ensure that the pipeline of project is not only there, but it, it, it's also um, reasonably um, uh, reliable, uh, you know, long-term uh, economic. Uh, and uh, and for, for that, uh, I'm pretty sure that um, we need to um, have some major changes in, in the way we both develop and we finance this project. And the dairy scheme is going to be key, I think. Yes, well, I mean, thanks, Anna. You know, I, I think you were, you were talking a bit about de-risking earlier. And if I can actually just sort of really zero in on, on de-risking and doing the work to create these bankable projects. I mean, when we're thinking about kind of emerging green technologies like green yeah. hydrogen or EV charging, you know, sectors where project finance lenders have been circling for a couple of years and there have been some projects but you know, they're, they're definitely not part of, say, the project finance mainstream. I mean, which de-risking mechanisms do you think might be most effective if we're looking to scale up private investments to these emergent technologies quickly? Well, first of all, I think if we're talking about de-risking for uh, innovative projects, we're probably only talking about OECD uh, countries, because then you've got the rest of the world where it's probably more uh, easier to, to develop a little bit more advanced technology to set aside the technology risk and, and deal uh, with uh, geopolitical uh, risk. 
Um, so to come back to that, I think, um, if we look at what has been working uh, in, in Europe uh, and we look at renewable, I think it's fair to say that uh, the, the, the subsidies and the schemes which have been put in place for uh, renewable energies in terms of uh, long-term contract offtake uh, has been a success uh, because that was giving um, the lenders a long-term view uh, on the returns. So uh, the, I think the, the key element in terms of supporting uh, the development is probably to guarantee one way or another uh, with public money or with public guarantee, um, a, a long-term offtake contract. You know, that's the only thing which gives uh, visibility uh, in, terms of, in terms of revenues. Then we can obviously make some assessment on whether that's the only tool or whether there is also some demand support in terms of uh, bridging the CapEx investment. In any case, wherever you put it, uh, this part must be counter-guaranteed by public money. At this stage, uh, there is really only a limited number of uh, players who are progressing um, those developments, but they do that on balance sheets because they've got deep pockets. And here we're talking obviously about the big uh, oil and gas companies, for example, all of them being transitioning and doing some testing and some experiments. Uh, on their own budget, so they can do that because they've got the return they've got from oil and the, the amazing balance they've got. But if we want uh, a massive uh, scallop and development, we need all of that to happen within the territories at the local level, and probably with a large number of small and medium-sized company. So that's why, in my view, the support in terms of long-term offtake is, is, is a must-have. So either in France, we were doing it through EDF or for power, uh, or uh, if it's a public, uh, if it's a private offtaker, we could have some kind of mechanisms where the, if if the offtake, uh, if the offtaker goes bust, for example, there could be a, a, a legal provision pursuant which there is the last uh, recourse uh, offtaker guaranteeing a minimum of money. You know, or we could have an exante premium. So there are a certain number of mechanisms, but as of today, the mandatory, uh, the mandatory um, movement to ensure there is development of innovation is massive public support, and that's it. There is there is no uh, private company which can uh, take the risk uh, to um, to 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 develop on a large scale. So they can do it on a pilot and testing basis. But you know, from an industry and commercial standpoint, that needs to be supported by by public subsidies. So that's there are various ways to do it. Um, as we know, the the US uh, has decided to support the development of renewable to use a tax benefit, uh, you know, PT um, uh, the the tax credit, uh, and, um, and and that works as well. Um, I'm less favorable to that because the tax rule is changing every year. So there is also this question whether that's that's as reliable as a long-term offtake contract of, or support. Uh, but um, all in all, uh, we definitely need to have a certain number of public money or fund or offtake to be supported by by the states uh, and in particular in Europe by by uh, the member states. There is obviously uh, some good element already existing. 
because the European Union is providing some subsidies already uh, with the uh, the CPI project, so the, so the Common Interest project, and uh, for the first time, it was agreed that if you benefit from this kind of support from the uh, Commission, you can also support from local uh, subsidies. And normally, if you've got one, you can't have the others. You can't accumulate uh, uh, EU and domestic subsidies, but uh, for those kind of projects that has been specifically agreed. So we see that the lines are moving, but there, are, there is a huge work to organize for innovation uh, to be supported by public money. I think as well that from a legal uh, and regulatory framework, we probably need to consider uh, some adjustment uh, to allow for quicker testing of a certain number of innovation projects. All the states do have, obviously, environmental control, permitting, and a certain number of, uh, of um, authorization processes in order to ensure that those projects are complying with law, are protecting the population, and so on. I think if we want to be, to be quicker, we probably need to create a kind of um, testing bubble where uh, under certain circumstances, uh, a certain number of projects could actually uh, benefit from the right to, to operate uh, in order to do some testing um, while benefiting of a fast track authorization. So we probably need to do um, both together to, um, to see how we can accelerate all the pilot phase and how we can fast track that because we don't have the time to wait for uh, the current and, and very protective and very normal uh, authorization development for, for the, the, the developing phase. Um, you know, uh, depending on what we talk about, uh, projects may takes about between three and six years to be, uh, to be authorized. If we're talking about uh, renewable or probably hydrogen, it's gonna be the same, maybe shorter for, for four years, five years. And obviously, if we're talking about very long-term things such as you know uh, uh, interconnectors, or if we're talking about nuclear, we're on a you know more than ten years um, uh, authorization process. So, so I think there is this legal framework, and where in a limited way we could support uh, faster uh, innovation testing testing uh, projects. Number one, and number two, we absolutely urgently need to have a support scheme from uh, from the the member states. Uh, in Europe and elsewhere in the OECD to, to support uh, innovation. That can't be financed by private money, for sure. No, thank, thank you, Anne. That's very interesting. And I just, I, I want to return to a point you made right at the beginning to, of your response uh, regarding de-risking in terms of sort of make, drawing the distinction between sort of developed and developing countries or OECD countries and, and, and other countries. Uh, and I, I remember Sri Mulyani speaking at COP26 and sort of illustrating the scale of investment that's going to be needed um, by, you know, developing countries in order to decarbonize. And if we just return to the question of de-risking, I mean, are there particular mechanisms um, that are particularly useful in developing countries for helping the kind of de-risking process, given the other risks that you highlighted earlier that do exist there beyond just, you know, these technologies being emergent, uh, other geopolitical factors? Well, I, I think there are two, two things uh, really important. One, uh, which we have already uh, tested, uh, which is the CDM and NGI, so Clean Development Mechanism. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that because we finally do have an agreement on Article 6 uh, following the, the, the Glasgow negotiations, 
uh, we're moving toward a global uh, carbon market. So that's number one, I'm gonna develop this ID. And, and, but number two, I think we need to have a game changer really to, to scale up that and I'll, I'll cover that as well. So on number one, we used to have uh, in the Kyoto Protocol, the, the possibility to actually have uh, the, uh, what we call the Schedule One um, member states, so the one on, on the OECD, the richest country, invest in project uh, into the uh, developing countries and to receive some what was called environmental attribute, CER, certificate emission reductions, uh, if the project uh, was actually uh, clean and that there was some additionality in the sense that it was demonstrated that because of the state of the local economy, look, this local economy could, not, could have not afforded uh, to finance this project, but because there is this investment pouring into the country with from, from this uh, uh, developing country and this richer company, then in order to compensate this company to make this effort, they're entitled to receive CER. And uh, so that's a, that, that, that's, a, that's a certificate that can be traded. And um, that used to be the case where there was an agreement where when you had CER, i.e. when you had invested in a developing country on a clean project, you could actually trade that back into the uh, EU ETS, so the uh, European Union carbon market, for part of the mandatory obligation uh, the states had. So there was a limitation. Uh, I think in France, you couldn't have back uh, into the system of the EU ETS more than 23% uh, for France, I think. So if, if to be very uh, simplistic, France had to, um, a maximum of uh, emission quota, uh, uh, you know, uh, granted by the EU of 100 and had to give 100 back at the end of the year, uh, 23 of those 100 could be coming from um, investment made outside France in developing countries, in the countries listed in Schedule 2. So that's an old system. Um, and I think with Article 6, we can come back to that. And we've got to consider whether we can integrate part of this investment into the EU ETS. Why? Because EU ETS is the larger carbon market and is the more liquid one. So that has some uh, um, effect. And obviously the more uh, the carbon price of these units, whether they're CER or whether they're, you know, URSS or whatever, because we've got so many uh, type of, of, of credit guarantee of origin and so on. But to make a very long story short, if the carbon price is going up, then it could be a very, very good way to incentivize strongly investment in developing countries. So that's probably the number one is to think how we can put back in place something which did exist all the time, but make, make that work much better than it did, even if it did work well from a mechanism standpoint, from an economic, from an effect standpoint, the scaling, the scaling up was not there. But that's also pro probably due to the fact that uh, the EU ETS market was so long, uh, i.e. too many carbon uh, certificates on the market. So the, the price crashed uh, and, and so there were less incentive to invest that kind of project. So there was probably a market issue rather than the mechanic issue as, as well. So that's the number one. 
Number two is really how we do scale up uh, investment in those countries. And um, definitely because of the risk, um, we need to have uh, probably a, a, a game-changing uh, mechanism here. For many, many years, the only uh, institution which were really uh, capable of investing in developing countries are uh, uh, IFIs and DFIs, so you know, public banks, public money, so the, the World Bank, the European Investment Bank, the African Development Bank, and a large number of others, but all of them can lend money because they've got a mission to lend money. But when you look at the developing country, if there is no guarantee, none of the big commercial banks worldwide can take that kind of risk because the, there is a large number of political instability, because there is a lack of reliable infrastructure. So the level of risk is judged by uh, the commercial bank as being too high. But we know that 90% of the energy transition is gonna be uh, financed, has to be financed by the public sector, but sorry, by the private sector. So we need to find a way to have the, the, the private sector to invest into those countries. So how can they do that? The only way is that if they feel there, they, there is some de-risk of their financing. Um, I had the pleasure to work uh, with TerraWatt Initiatives, which now has completed its work. That was an, uh, an organization which has been uh, set up um, at, uh, in Paris, COP21, uh, by Ban Ki-moon and Ségolène Royal at the time. The aim was actually to um, develop uh, a dedicated support scheme to uh, uh, develop mass uh, scaling up solar everywhere in developing countries for the cheapest amount possible. And uh, that was a pro bono work we've been doing for three years with a large number of banks worldwide, including all public banks, a large number of law firms, probably the major law firms worldwide, which is very unusual, we work all together. And we've produced a set of standardized documents, uh, which are now all available uh, online uh, and uh, under the, um, in the website called uh, uh, Open Source uh, and uh, Open, sorry, Open Solo Contracts. And that's fully available, but that's not, um, that's not operational. Why? Because the negotiation on what was the key element after preparing all of this documentation which provide for how you develop the project, uh, how you, uh, what type of contract you use, we've drafted all contracts in terms of development, construction, operation, everything. All of that is open source and the idea was anybody can take those contracts, adjust them to their project, fill that back into a, a database uh, which with some intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence, will look at whether there is a respect of the balance of the various risk balance which are agreed originally in the negotiation. And if there is only minor diversion, it's a guarantee to access the money automatically, no audit, nothing. Okay, so that, that's the way it should it should work. It can only work if between the the what I've just described and the access to private money. Uh, there, is a, there is a fund guaranteeing that if something goes wrong into the project, the banks will be paid back. And what is the game changer here is, is that it's aiming at financing very small 
small uh, size project because the, the issue we've got at the time being is that because of transaction cost, because of the risk, because of the uh, audit and uh, technical challenges, um, it's only the biggest projects which are actually bankable in those uh, uh, judged high-risk countries. But the problem is that because the grid or the infrastructure is, is, is pretty weak and need to be involved, what would make sense is not to develop one big project somewhere, it's to develop 1,000 very small projects everywhere, in particular for power. I mean, when you've got a weak grid, you can't actually create uh, uh, you know, a CCGT, so a gas-fired plant of 400 megawatt in a grid which can't transport it. You're much better with uh, 1,000 of less than one megawatt size PV project everywhere on the local distribution. So that can be taken by the grid and distributed. So that has happened. For the moment, it has not been uh, succeeded. Uh, there is some uh, development which have been uh, taken forward and are still discussed by ARENA and under the Lume Convention in order to try to implement and to give life to this package. Um, I don't know whether that's going to happen because multilateralism is difficult and it's a long way. My personal uh, dream and wish would be that um, maybe it's to do a pilot project in one country where I could draft a, a dedicated a specialized law to have that pack uh, implemented, one fund, and then we, we develop and we, we, we saw uh, how strongly it could work. The principle of the fund would probably be that if you do 1,000 uh, project of PV of less than one megawatt, the risk that all of them goes to the wall is nil. So obviously it's because you've got a large number of small size projects that the fund can actually operate well. Um, the idea, obviously, is that if we can enlarge that to uh, two, three or four countries in the same region, there is also the strong pressure that they, there is no default, uh, because if there is a default in one country, there could be some, some support from uh, the other project, i.e. the other neighbor, neighboring project. So there is a kind of a virtue of having more than one state. But if that's the way forward, uh, maybe uh, the demonstration could be done with, with, with one country. But what is certain is that even with the great um, initiative, such as sculling solar, which has been done by the European, European sorry, the, the World Bank, IFC, it doesn't give the volume it was expected. So we need to have, um, again, uh, change a uh, vision and to set up different way to, to do it, to cut and guarantee commercial bank and to ensure that they will uh, lend money to finance projects into more risky countries, i.e. we need to give them comfort that they will, they will not take the first hit if something goes wrong. And in my view, that's the key element in terms of urgency is that the players need to be working on a on a on a guarantee fund, uh, which would allow all of these type of system to operate and to operate quickly and to be successful in terms of scaling and of investment uh, uh, in a massive way. Otherwise, if we keep on doing one project per one project, that will never timely happen. Yes, of course. That thanks, Anna. 
If I just move on to looking at how lenders' priorities might shift, you know, in the wake of things like the Net Zero Banking Alliance commitments. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of lenders have already committed to stop lending to new coal projects you know, over the last few years. And that's very much kind of the obvious choice, the obvious candidate for complete elimination from lenders' lending portfolios. But I'm interested to talk about natural gas projects. I mean, do you think it's possible to reduce lending to natural gas in the same way as it is with coal and as quickly as lenders plan to with coal? I don't think so. <laughs> it's just, you know, I don't think so because we need power. We need energy. So uh, is, is natural gas uh, a solution to climate change? No. Definitely not, and 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 the way forward is probably to go uh, towards biogas, you know, clean gas, and that kind of thing. So, but but uh, there is a transition moment, and um, I'm not sure that uh, we can afford uh, to uh, to go straight to uh, the cleanest solution. First of all, they do not exist today. Okay, but today we've got gas, we've got pipelines. And the good thing with natural gas is that you can blend it with biomethane, with biogas, and all of that works in the same pipeline. So you can blend. So you can, you can have this transition moment in order to keep on delivering to the final customer uh, while you're actually investing on greener solutions and innovative solution on the, um, on, on the feedstock side, I would say. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's feasible. Am I a big supporter of gas? I don't think so, but I, I think we need to be realistic. Uh, and, um, and, and, and for the time being, there is no way we can get rid of, of gas as quickly as coal. Uh, so uh, we will need to get rid of gas or at least of natural gas, uh, the way it is polluting today. Um, but um, we've got a, a, a very large uh, investment in terms of a carbon capture, CCUS. Once again, that's also not the solution, but it's very good it does exist. So if we do CCUS plus blending, that's probably a good, uh, a good transition um, solution. And, um, and, and that will need to be financed if we don't want to have a catastrophe in terms of uh, end uh, user consumer. When we look at the current price prices of energy, um, because of the post-COVID uh, uh, economy relaunch, it's very difficult, and it's very difficult to have that and to be sustainable if all the price of power is above 250 on the gross market every day. And gas is the same thing. So uh, all the prices are going to the roof. So it's a difficult exercise to cut down big volumes of um, energy supply, whereas the prices are going to the roof. So it's really a question of balancing the end of the world with the end of the month. And at the time being, I don't think we can uh, afford uh, not to, 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 to finance gas projects, uh, but I think we need to uh, really accelerate all CCUS projects and support that. Uh, as well as uh, incentivize and support uh, biomethans, for sure. Thanks, Anna. Balancing the end of the world with the end of the month. I, I like that. Thank you. Um, and well, uh, you know, I'm French, so we've got the the 
the, the visa yeah, jacket, the, the yellow jacket as we call them in France. So we can see how uh, it's difficult when the price of uh, fuel is going to the roof and that people cannot uh, afford to put uh, oil in their tank that directly affect the capacity to go to work. So, so even in a developing country like in France, that's an issue. So in emerging countries, that's even more complex for those people who do not have enough of energy and access to energy today to, um, um, to enforce the facts and to, to convince them that they need to reduce the few they've got because it's polluting. So that, that's a difficult exercise for sure. Yes, no, of course. And I think it's an indicator that the transition is not quite as straightforward as sort of slashing investment to, you know, all fossil fuels all at the same yeah. time. Um, if I just ask a final question, um, and just looking at the framework that we've had over the last few years for green or sustainable infrastructure investment, you've had a number of different frameworks that have really regulated that, things like the green loan principles and the green bond principles. Um, but we, at COP26, we saw the launch of things like the Fast Infra Sustainable Infrastructure label. And as regulation like that, which is designed to be a little bit more global, it yeah. evolves. I mean, do you think there is going to be greater consistency uh, regarding how the credentials of green loans and sustainability linked loans are, are monitored? Well, I hope so, because uh, you probably can see me smiling. You know, the, the, the issue we've got is that obviously there is no global uh, supra uh, national body which can regulate uh, the, the planet. And, and so the difficulty uh, we've been uh, seeing in the past few years is that um, the good thing is that a large number of people now understand uh, the consequence of climate change and the fact that it's not a if, it's a when, and that we've not, we really need to transition and there is no question on, 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 on the impact and, and the urgency. So that's the good thing. But it has led to, uh, uh, to uh, the development uh, from a certain number of working groups of great initiatives to try to, um, to elaborate a taxonomy on a certain number of, um, of things. I mean, label uh, from, a, uh, from a financing standpoint, of course, but we've got the EU taxonomy. Uh, we've got a very, very uh, interesting report from the Imperial College. Uh, which says actually this taxonomy should not be only on finance, but it should be a, a climate taxonomy and to have a more wider uh, a scope. And, um, and, and there are a certain number of labels already existing everywhere. And, uh, and that's the issue. Either at some point, um, it's very, very difficult um, to, to have a global vision of what is applying. Some have more uh, demanding than others. Some are more reliable than others. Some are just, you've got the label and you've got it for life, which obviously is a problem because uh, we need to have target, we need to have evolution, we need to have progression, we need to have improvement. So the label needs to be adjusted on a regular basis. So yes, the fast uh, infra uh, sustainable um, uh, label is a very good thing because it's an attempt to be global, as you said, uh, because that's, a, that's an IFC uh, initiative. And this initiative has been based on the work which has done by, I can't remember, 25 or, or, or more um, uh, institutions in the world which work on those subjects. 
to try to have a more consistent and, and uh, uh, reliable um, number of criteria. And what I find that is really, really good on top of the fact that this, world is, this, this work is great is two things. First of all, you can uh, apply for the label at various stage of the projects. And in all of the other things, uh, uh, kind of nomenclature, uh, which were existing before, you had to qualify upfront for your infra project and that was it. Uh, here in this new uh, fast label, uh, you can uh, request the label either at the development level, you know, at the construction level, or at the operation level. So even if you're already operating, you may not qualify uh, as is, but maybe by upgrading a certain number of things, in, in improving your transparency or the publication on your data, you can suddenly qualify and have access uh, actually to that level. And um, it's true that um, it's, uh, it, we, we need to have some reliable uh, uh, labeling uh, and for me, that's probably the, the, I mean, the initiative is good. We will see how we'll develop and whether uh, there, there will be a global adoption by uh, the financial uh, community, but it's, it's very, very good. It does exist. And so, so, so that's the thing is that you can, you can enter at every level and then, so development, construction or operation, and then every five years you reassess and the level as well is going to be uh, evolving. So for me, that's really the, the two points. Um, on the labeling, um, if you look at the carbon market, you've got a large number of various carbon projects uh, with a, a large number of different, I think we've got 27 uh, carbon markets in the world, and uh, you've got a certain number of private uh, institutions which are providing some certification. Some of them are very good. Some of them are less good. It's very, it's same problem. It's very difficult to understand the quality in terms of real reliability of ESG commitment and so on of those projects. And the two main and very serious ones, I mean, are VERA and Gold Standard. And VERA you know, uh, published last week the fact that they've realized that there had been some um, fraud on the issuance of, of some of their, uh, of, their, of their VERA certificate for certain projects. So the fact that we need to have a global system where uh, there is no global body having jurisdiction to sanction, to define, is a really a challenge. So I hope that uh, the fast infra label will help to, uh, to adjust and, and to provide a more consistent and reliable uh, scope of, of, of criteria um, to make all lenders and, and, and consumers and private equity investors comfortable on the fact that the project they are investing in um, are actually good projects from a sustainable standpoint. So it's a very, very good initiative. Um, it will need to be implemented and will take time, but um, because that's led by IFC with all of these uh, very, very serious um, institutions involved in, I'm pretty optimistic that yes, it's going to have a very positive effect on the financing uh, market and will help uh, money to pour into the, the energy transitions. To come back on what you say on gas and on, on transition and tools and financing tools, I just feel we need to have green loans, we need to have green bonds, uh, we need to go to a green economy, uh, sustainable circular economy for sure. But what is interesting is that 
um, we see also the creation of transition bonds and transition laws. And I think that's a master. That's the little window, uh, financial window in between for which we need to finance not grain project, but less polluting projects, and they need to, to be financed because they're less polluting and because in terms of volume, we need to have access to all this energy. So we can't switch uh, to 100% of green everything or clean everything because there is a reality principle. We don't have the neither the time nor the money to finance this transition in one moment today or in the coming five years, that, that, that won't happen. And that's why, uh, I highly appreciate uh, the work I do with the Bertrand Picard uh, Foundation Solar Impulse, which has uh, certified 1,400 uh, innovative solutions, which have been um, discussed at COP as well. And the idea is that those solutions are labeled, not because they're green, but because they, they, they are two elements. They, they offer a less polluting solution than the actual solution uh, widely developed for the kind of process at stake, number one. And number two, they're economic. And the, the bet is that if they're scaled up, they will be economic. I think from a, from a, from a uh, innovative standpoint, we know how to be clean for most, if not all of the things, but the cost uh, which is actually involved in certain type of solutions are not just sustainable. So we need to find other innovation which has more accessible. So with Bertrand vision is that it needs to be economic and less polluting. And I think for the green finance, that's gonna be the same as well. We obviously need to have fast infra sustainable um, infrastructure label and that kind of things, but we also need to finance uh, less polluting uh, systems in order to have uh, enough volume of energy to transition and end up in 2050 net zero. Thanks very much, Anne. And I'm really, really sorry to say that I think that's all we've got time for today. But uh, Anne, thank you once again for taking the time to talk to me on the podcast. That's my pleasure, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. It's been wonderful to interview you, I think, during what's been a really fascinating discussion. So thank you. And um, thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to join us again in the new year for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news from Proximo. Mm -hmm.